0: What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses with the goal of hearing about their stories and what goes on behind the scenes so that the rest of us can learn from their successes and their failures. Today, I'm talking to Dawson Whitfield, the creator of LogoJoy. If that name sounds familiar, it might be because I talked to Dawson last year for IndieHackers.com, and this interview was one of the most popular that I've ever done. I think it hit 100,000 page views in its first 24 hours on the site. There's a lot of talk about how success never really happens overnight and how it's always years in the making. And I don't think Dawson is necessarily an exception to that rule. However, LogoJoy, the product that Dawson built, really did take off the second it was exposed to the public. And I think it's fun to hear him analyze why that happened and, and tell the story behind it. So here we are one year later. Dawson, how's it going? Hey, it's going well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Last year when you were on Indie Hackers. Your story hit the front page of Hacker News, and it was number one for that entire day, but it ended up turning into a little bit of a scandal. Do <laughs> you remember? Yeah. Because what happened was that you had just launched LogoJoy and Product Hunt, I think a week before doing your interview for indie Hackers, and you made something like $7,000 in that first week. So I extrapolated to say, oh, you know, LogoJoy's making $15,000 a month, which is actually a pretty conservative estimate. I could have said like $28,000, but people on Hacker News still got super upset about it, and accused me of misrepresenting things. And so it was kind of a mess. And then a few months later in March, I get an email from you out of the blue saying, Hey, Cortland, how's it going? Would you mind updating my revenue on the site? I'm at $70,000 a month now. So your growth ended up proving the haters wrong. But more than anything, I was just floored by how fast you grew.
1: Yeah, it was quite a roller coaster. Yeah, I I appreciate you uh, taking the blame for that. But I think it was actually me who who extrapolated it and misrepresented it to you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I barely even remember all the details, but I do know that it turned out okay in the end. So when we ended up doing the interview, you described LogoJoy to me as an online logo creator that uses machine learning to make it feel like you're working with a real designer. Is that still an accurate description of LogoJoy today, a year later?
1: It is. It absolutely is. Uh, the, the one thing that's, that's changing is we're, we're starting to sort of expand our, our horizons and that we're looking uh, to really make LogoJoy... Into a product that can design anything, okay. The logo, or business cards, or restaurant's menu. Um, We want to really bring our technology uh, to every kind of design.
0: That sounds crazy ambitious.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a really hard problem to solve. I think the the hardest thing about it is, uh, you know, a lot of companies are are sort of taking Photoshop, simplifying it, and and putting it online. uh, You know, combining with beautiful templates and all that. Which, which is a great product for a lot of people. Um, but we, we sort of want to sort of differentiate and saying, you know, we're not going to try to make you a designer. We want to be your designer. And that's, that's sort of where the, the real um, challenges come in.
0: They're going to do all the hard work for people and let them just have the easy job of clicking the design that works, huh?
1: Exactly. It's, it's kind of like we had someone, one of our customers say, it was kind of like watching TV. It was just so effortless uh, and you ended up spending so much time uh, just sort of playing around. That you 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 just spent so much time on it that you ended up finding a, uh, in this case, a logo that you loved. But we think you can find it, uh, really any kind of design that you love.
0: Cool. So let's go back to the beginning of Logojoy. How did you come up with the original idea for an AI-powered logo maker?
1: So uh, I've been a designer my entire life, about thirteen or fourteen years, uh, doing it you know somewhat professionally. Almost a lot of that time was spent uh, doing logos for clients. Um, so uh, last summer, I was doing a logo for a client and, you know, the whole process probably took about three weeks. Uh, the client must have spent about 3000 uh, bucks. And and really, at the end of the day, I I, I felt like a, a glorified font picker. And it was it was frustrating for me because, you know, here I am, I've invested my my life into into being, you know, the best designer that I can. And I'm, I truly feel like I'm just getting in the way when I'm doing this work with with these clients. And it really killed me. So I, you know, I went out looking for um, a product that basically made it easy for entrepreneurs to, to get a nice looking logo, didn't find any. Uh, and so decided to, uh, to build it.
0: It reminds me kind of of that. I don't know if you've seen that comic by I think it was the oatmeal, where it's a designer making a website for someone and then they keep basically second guessing every decision the designer makes. And by the end of the whole process, it's the ugliest web- website in the world. And the designer is so embarrassed to have made it
1: it's funny It's really at the core of what we're doing. Like a lot of our customers love the perfect amount of control that they have over the process. So it's it's a fine balance of you know we want to be able to give those smart suggestions and things like that for their design, uh, but they still want to feel like they're someone in control, so they can tell us to show us them, show them different fonts or or different colors or anything like that. So it's really about finding that that perfect balance of of how much control we actually give the uh, the user.
0: So when you first came up with the idea. Did you have any inkling that it could be become so big? What were your goals like?
1: It's funny. So I don't know if you know this, but like my friends make fun of me. Uh, well, used to make fun of me because I just like every month I had a new side project, and I'd always get like super amped up about them, and then two weeks would go by, and then I was like done with it and like ready ready to move on to the next. <laughs> um, with Logo Joy, and this is like this is kind of profound. Like it was. You could I could, I just knew like I could tell that like this is the one. It was just sort of that feeling that I had when I was building it. That that sort of excitement lasted more than two weeks. And it was one of those, it was such excitement that I would, you know, wake up and and like jump out of bed and literally not like I could not wait to to go and sit down and, and start working on it. And I just sort of had that feeling. It was like this is this is what I was meant to do, like this is perfect before I even launched.
0: What gave you that feeling? Because I imagine there are other tools out there at the time that help people sort of automate their designs, or at the very least, there are some templates and logo builders. So why were you so confident and so excited about what you're doing?
1: You're right. There were a lot of people doing it. And there still are. I think the biggest one was I have such a at the time I had such a profound knowledge of the domain. And so I like I knew that the solution that I it's like, I didn't even have to do user testing. Like my, my project before this was like an HR tool that helped people build employee handbooks. And I had no freaking clue what, 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 you know, what the hell that space is all about. And so I would do research and I would be like, oh yeah, there's a market for this employee handbook builder. Um, and they're like, you know, people spend a lot of money in the industry, but that like didn't really get me going um, with logo joy. I had been a designer for twelve years, and I had like I like saw the product and I just I could imagine my past clients using it. I can imagine myself like truly imagine myself using it. And so I think that's what it was. It was just it was just that intense domain expertise that that I knew, like I just knew this was something that was needed.
0: that's It's fascinating because it strikes me that there are probably thousands or possibly millions of designers who work with clients and then get annoyed at all the back and forth, just like you did. But probably very few of them come up with an idea to make a product to solve it, especially not an idea involving AI and machine learning. So why do you think things were different with you?
1: Um, well, I've always been a developer as well. Um, so I so I, had the, I, had the, like, I knew how to build it, and like, I could build it, which was like, pretty exciting. Being able to actually build your product um, is just so invigorating. Uh, that it, it just like f- it fuels you. I think that was probably the biggest one. I don't know. I think just general ambition. Yeah, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't really know. I think it's just my personality. Like I just love to uh, to build products, right? And if I can build a product that does a better job than than I would at, at something, um, but for you know a million more people, um, I'm going to build that product.
0: I think that's one of the exciting things about being a founder today, because even though so many people are online and so many people can code very few people are actually building stuff. You know, there's people working every job under the sun, but very few of them are thinking, how can I improve this job or make it better? And so if you want to get into it, there's a lot of low hanging fruit and a lot of ideas that you would think someone has done, but they haven't done, or they've done a very crappy job at it. And if you're dedicated to it, you can kind of improve it. So it's, it's like a pretty good time to start something new. It's,
1: it's crazy. And you look, at, you look at a space like the Logo Maker space and like logos have been around for a long time. People have been making logos for a very long time. Uh, so, like, rationally, you would think, no. Like, if somebody could have done it by now, someone would have done it by now, right? If someone could have made a really good logo maker, it would have been done already, and so there's no point of even trying. Exactly. Um, but yeah, just like just by caring so much, you can like people underestimate how how actually powerful that is. Uh, just just like caring a hundred times more than the incumbents.
0: And what did you think you cared the most about? Was it just solving the problem or was it making your own life easier or making life easier for all of designers or starting a successful startup? What was your primary driver?
1: I mean, it's like, it's kind of superficial, uh, but just like, like building a slick product. I actually had my, in my notes, uh, like why I'm doing this, like what I want in the future. And like one of the top ones was I just want like a slick product that I'm proud to show my friends. Uh, and that like makes enough money for me to to survive on. So I think, yeah, I think that's what really motivated me the, the most in the early days was just making like a really freaking cool
0: product. That's a pretty good motivation because it, it sounds like you're just a builder, a natural builder of things who enjoys building things for their own sake, at which point you want to take pride in your work. And then the question of how do you get out of bed every day is like easily answered because you're excited to build the thing that you're building, you know, and it, it's kind of its own reward.
1: Absolutely. And you spend <laughs> spend hours uh, you know, refining the, the easing and the, the transition.
0: <laughs> I was talking to one of my designer friends, this guy Tobias Sven Schneider, a few weeks ago on the podcast. And we were talking about the difference between founders with a developer background and founders with a designer background. And I, I think it's funny because as a designer, you're kind of a, a perfectionist about the design. you know. So it kind of slows you down in some bit, parts because you don't want to release something that you'd be embarrassed about.
1: Yeah, I think I think there's another little mindset thing there. Most developers I know are like they care about like cool things you you can't like that are possible. You know, little uh, things to like save time talking on the server and things like that. I think designers are a little um, have a higher tendency to think about uh, you know actually solving problems and think about you know empathizing with the user and thinking about how to um, you know. Design a, a product that that solves the, the user's problem, whereas a lot, most developers I know, or a lot of developers I know, are like, oh yeah, we could like use this cool technology in this way, and and they they, they don't really connect that with with the actual um, you know problem that they're that they should be trying to solve.
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty typical as a developer to be much further removed from the level at which customers are expressing what they want especially if you're a back-end engineer you might spend your entire career working on these systems that no customer will ever see or touch or know that it even exists and on one hand yeah like these systems enable customers to get what they want but on the other it's so indirect that you don't really speak the same language that users are speaking yeah
1: and I mean like uh, a lot of the time, some designers will when they're actually designing products, they'll forget like the 20 different what-ifs that a developer will catch. So that we, there's there's there's
0: a... It goes both ways.
1: Need for both, yeah.
0: So I think also there's something kind of scary for designers about a future in which AI can do their job or some large percentage of their job. And I'm sure it's scary for everyone, to be honest. Like The default response is denial. People say, oh, that's impossible. Maybe AI can do some things, but it can't de- do these other things over here. And meanwhile, the things that AI can't do are slowly shrinking in scope every year. Like 10 years ago, designers were probably like, AI can never make a good-looking logo. And then today, when they see LogoJoy, they'd be like, okay, it can make a decent-looking logo, but it can't do all the custom details that I can. And I don't know what things are going to look like 15 or 20 years from now, but I could see that being one reason why there weren't so many designers lining up to build an AI logo maker. Because if you're kind of in denial about it and afraid of it, you're not going to do it. It's
1: like a a horse making a car, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and as a designer, it it hits obviously really close to home for me. So, like, for one, I don't think AI will steal designers' jobs. I think designers will always continue to evolve. Um, You know, you look back 10 years ago, like you said, um, if you asked somebody to, you know, to build a website, you needed to hire a designer and developer. Nowadays, you just go on WordPress or Wix or Weebly or whatever. I think designers will always evolve. You know, maybe in 10 years, um, we'll need designers to design, you know, virtual worlds or... Um, or like a lot more AR stuff. So I think there'll, there'll be a lot of evolution there. The, I think the, the biggest fear is that the biggest sort of uh, thing for designers is that we are basically giving the industry a uh, making it look bad. Um, so we're like, we're reducing the perceived value of design because we're saying, oh, you can get it free or for 65 bucks. And to that, I, I just say like, doesn't necessarily matter. Like all we should be caring about is is what the what the customer wants, right? What the small business owner wants. And if we can help them get off the ground faster with a logo that they love um, for you know a tenth the price, then then that's a good world. And then it's up to you to to think about how you can provide more value.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like being a a newspaper editor in the the 90s when the internet comes out and saying, oh, we shouldn't go online. This is the inevitable force of progress. And either you accept it and try to provide more value in a better or new way, or you kind of rail against it and just eventually become irrelevant. And and maybe one of the lessons here is is as well, if you're looking to come up with a business idea, is that if everybody in in your industry is afraid of something or in denial about it, maybe that's a good place to look for creative new ideas. Yeah, absolutely. So back to kind of the story of the, the founding of Logo Joy. You're super excited about it. You've got this new idea. Uh, you're waking up every day excited to work. And you're not really talking to anybody or validating your idea. Uh, what were you doing besides just building? Was it just nothing but building? And, and how long did it take you to get the product out?
1: Yeah, it was literally just building.
0: <laughs> That's the other nice thing
1: about doing something that you have domain expertise in, is that you can just build. Uh, it took Two and a half months uh, from idea to launch. Basically, two and a half months of of pure, like, just coding and design.
0: I think a lot of people fall into this trap of not talking to anybody and not doing any research and also not having any real domain expertise. And so they build something for two or six months and it doesn't get any traction. In addition to your domain expertise, were you a fan of any particular startup philosophy? Like, a lot of people swear by Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup. A lot of people swear by Paul Graham's essays is there anything that you subscribe to
1: oh anything I subscribe to I, it's, I don't I don't know which which of my uh, mantras are are also mantras of the startup world I mean one thing I did do it wasn't really talking to users but I would often um, well I did I did do a beta test with my friends and I would I would get some feedback there one one thing I did was I would look at like I would do a lot of reading online like I would I would go to like agency like design agency websites and see how they talked about their services and like how they presented their logos and tried to mimic things like that like you know one of the one of the big things that we did was you know we showed a lot more like we didn't do watermarks over our logos we showed our logos with a lot of contrast uh, a lot of white space around them and some sort of things like that so I, I did do like a lot of like I just looked at what the the best people in the industry were doing. Like, not the best logo makers, but like, you know, you know, actually one thing is you know the, the whole mantra of think about the 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 job that your customers are hiring you to solve. And so for us, the the job that our, our users were hiring us to solve was was building them a logo, a beautiful logo. So I looked at, you know, not not other logo makers because I thought they were all crap, but I looked at um, who people are hiring right now to get the best logo that they can. And those are, you know, the top 10 agencies in, in the world. And I looked at how they sort of presented their logos and how they communicated with their clients and things like that. I sort of mimicked that, the the pinnacle of like the best way we could do it. So I tried to mimic that as, close as, as closely as I could. Yeah, I think that really, uh, that worked out well.
0: That's such a good way to go about it, to recognize that it's not only about the product that you're building and trying to make the best logo maker, but to understand like what problem your clients have and what like thing that they really want, what do they value and what do they, what do they desire? And I, I think it's a hard lesson for a lot of people to learn. I knew it took me a very long time to learn that lesson. Where do you think you learned that lesson? If, if not entirely from your, your job as a designer and working with clients, is there any other thing that influenced you to kind of teach you to think that way?
1: Honestly, just, just building and, and testing out a lot of products. I, uh, I had one, one, one old side project uh, that took up two years of my life. Same kind of thing as like like 10-hour days. Um, and it just did not have any legs. And I only realized two years into it. Um, but that was a really big learning curve. That sort of, I was, after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm solving a need that uh, you know, people currently hire other people to, to do or to solve.
0: What was the product?
1: It was uh, called WiseWords, and it was an online marketplace for career advice. Uh, so we connected students and recent grads with people doing their dream jobs.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like something that people might want. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> I like talking about failure stories because everyone who succeeded has done like at least a handful of things that didn't go over very well. And I think it's interesting to, to dive into it because then I learn, and all of us learn really, like what it is that you learned to get you to the point where you could create something that succeeded really well. So uh, I love postmortems. Yeah, the postmortems are great. Why don't we dive into a little bit more detail on that? And like, what was the process like of you figuring out that it wasn't going to work?
1: So I liken it to. So I built the product again like, myself, and I was marketing it myself. Um, so it was during like when we were like marketing it, then I realized it wasn't going to work. I, I liken it to to running with like a parachute behind you. Uh, this parachute is like not product it's like the non product market fit parachute um and then you can take it off when you have product market fit and you can actually run
0: um, <laughs> it's kind of hard to tell that sometimes though
1: i mean it was a slow realization <laughs> but it was it was yeah
0: it was the right like
1: it was pretty obvious um people just like didn't stick around and then there was a moment where i was like okay this isn't working you know the 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 business model people didn't want to pay for it it was yeah people that's probably the biggest one people didn't want to pay for it
0: Yeah, that sounds rough. What kinds of things did you try to get people to pay for it? Or was it a situation where you tried one thing and it didn't work out? So you kind of just cut your losses? No, we tried. I tried everything.
1: So like on the on the um, checkout page, I added like all these great benefits of like working with a like getting mentorship. Um, I tried to like, uh, I tried to be like the matchmaker. So I would Send out like 100 emails a day um, saying, hey, you know, John, you should talk to Sarah and, and vice versa. Oh, what else? Yeah, I did a lot of, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of blurry for me. But I did a lot of just kind of wild things for that.
0: That's such a tough problem to solve. And I haven't seen very many matchmaking services, with the exception of dating apps, really take off in a big way. I think both people who are being matched have to be at sort of the right place and point in their lives to be matched for whatever purpose and you really need to find something where you can match people frequently instead of just once and then they're done. So it's really just a tough problem to solve and to get people to pay for.
1: Yeah, it was really hard. The hardest thing was that it, all the mentorship sessions were over the phone. Oh, you know what? You know it was a really bad time when Google launched, uh, they launched help outs. And I was like, all right, cool. Like they're validating the, and this is when I was like halfway through. I was like, they're validating the industry. Like, this is good. Uh, and then Google shut down Helpouts, was and Helpouts <laughs> was was like doing the same thing that I was doing, and I was like, oh,
0: well, uh, this <laughs> might be a sign. So that, that was a bad one. It's rough stuff, but here you are, years later, and you find yourself working on yet another project that you're super excited about, and you're spending 10 hours a day on it, and you're excited and optimistic about the launch, even though it's not clear that things are going to work out in the end. And of course, now we know in hindsight that it, it did work out, but... Tell us about the, the weeks leading up to launch and how you got ready to unveil your project to the world. So I did a lot of beta testing.
1: I, I had a pretty good inkling that this was going to be a success. Uh, I was hoping out of the gates. So I had a lot of my friends do. I had like a, a Facebook group uh, with my friends doing beta testing. Yeah, but and you know, but I really didn't focus too much on the marketing plan. Uh, it was it was really just sort of build and all my other products. I've really focused on the marketing plan and I've spent like the last two weeks, uh, with the product being ready to launch, working on like how to like launch on day one. Um, and I've learned that you should never have like a launch date. It should always like be a slow rollout. I had uh, Chris Messina post it on, I had like this form on his website to like, for like people to ask him to post stuff on product for them. Uh, so I did that, and I was lucky enough to have him post it for me. and yeah, it was it was I mean, the weeks spent up were really just just building in, building it, refining the design of it, uh, and just you yeah, heads down coding, almost almost no almost no marketing.
0: Why do you think this slow rollout method worked better for you, and why did you how did you go from doing these big marketing pushes to this totally new approach?
1: Because the the marketing pushes have never worked. And it's always a letdown. It's always a letdown. And like to launch your product and have a letdown on the first day is like can be devastating and can really just deflate you. Uh, so I've learned to just have like almost no expectations when I launch, and you can do that by just launching when the product is like okay. And once you have like no expectations when you launch, then you haven't like exhausted all of your enthusiasm before you launch. And then, so this way, when you like launch when it's like just okay, uh, you still have like all this fire inside of you to carry it on when it's actually out there, which is 99.9% of the work.
0: Yeah, there's so many guides online that are like 100, you know, checklist items (laughs) you need to do before you launch. And you read those and they're just so overwhelming. Like, there's no way I'm going to do all of this. It sounds exhausting. I'm probably going to miss half of it. And then, if you, I can't imagine doing all of those things and then having the launch just flop and still wanting to like keep going.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I think people really underestimate the psychological aspect of building a product and they don't really take it into account when they're doing their planning. And if you set yourself up for these huge failures where your expectations are massive and it all hinges on one moment of time, then when things don't go well, you're going to quit. And if you quit, you won't win.
1: Yeah. And also um, I found that marketing a product like just focusing on marketing once you've already launched is also helpful uh, because it's a lot more like you're a lot more sort of inspired and excited to market something that's actually out there. Like I love being able to have an idea, for example, like a marketing idea and being able to do it that same day. When you're like thinking of marketing ideas before you launch, first of all, you're taking time away from building it. And second of all, it's it's not as you know exciting um, and you probably won't be as motivated to do it. Um, if you haven't
0: launched it. Yeah, not at all. And I think another thing worth mentioning is even if you do have a big launch that goes really well, the weeks after that are most of the time not that great. They're kind of discouraging. And I think for you, you you ended up growing growing a ton. But I remember when I launched any Hackers, I kind of had this no expectations, I'll launch it when it's done. And I think on like a Wednesday, I was like, you know what, I'm launching tomorrow. And I emailed a few people to let them know. And it went really well. And then the next three weeks, I think, the traffic was lower every single day than it had been the day before. And I had no idea where the bottom was going to be. I just thought it was going to go all the way down to zero. It was super stressful. And so I, I kind of regretted doing this huge launch out of the gate. I wish that I had like slowly rolled it out. So it would at least have like, you know, the happiness of seeing the traffic go up instead of down every day. Yeah, absolutely. So let's fast forward back to the present. You launch. Joy makes $7,000 in its first week. Then you do an indie hackers interview. That blows up. You email me a few months later in March and tell me that LogoJoy is doing $70,000 a month in revenue. Where is LogoJoy today? How big is it and how much revenue are you guys generating?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's by the way, it's almost been a year.
0: It's, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty close.
1: Um, so yeah, it's been quite the roller coaster. Um, we are up to uh, 24 employees. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, we're we're doing about uh three hundred thousand, uh, just over three hundred thousand dollars a month it's canadian wow it's been quite exciting not, lots of growth our first uh summer which was we realized the seasonality of, of business <laughs> that was terrifying we had, <laughs> yeah we had a couple of months in summer where not we had down months and like yeah i i was like oh shit like this is it like we're going
0: that you wouldn't think that like a, a logo maker would have would be really that seasonal what's uh what happens in the summer
1: uh it's just i mean people i, I had a, a couple conversations with um some industry veterans and uh and they they sort of confirmed this people people like businesses just start less in the summer i guess people are you know they're off on vacation stuff like that but we we made it we made it through and uh yeah we moved into our own office here in toronto
0: yeah, I haven't really followed up with you since we last talked, so I had no idea that you were at twenty-four employees. When we did our indie hackers interview, it was just you by yourself, right? So you added all of those people since then.
1: Yeah, that was it was just me.
0: It's crazy the whole idea of, of just being in this situation when you're a one-man shop and you can grow to be pretty much anything that you want. You can stay indie and small and treat this as like a one-man business, or so you can try to expand your team as fast as possible. And then you've got you know, funding decisions too. You could bootstrap or you can raise money from outsiders. What was going through your head when you saw things starting to explode early on and how did you decide which path that you're going to follow?
1: What's What's funny is that there was no like conscious decision. Uh, and I realized this afterwards. I just sort of by default was like, all right, sweet, I can hire someone now and like I can like get someone to help me market it and like get someone to help develop it and do support. And only until we were like, you're probably like 15 people. Was I like, Oh shit, you know what? Like, not that I would ever want to. I was like, Oh shit. Like I can, I could have just like stayed indie and be making, you know, whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was, it was, you know, when I, when I started Logan, like I, I don't want to live life to achieve like good success. Like I want to like change the world, right? Like I want to make something that, that everyone in the world knows about and everyone, and you know, every entrepreneur uses for me there was no no conscious decision to to stay indie or to 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 grow it it was just like it, obviously and then with with uh you know whether to raise money or to stay bootstrapped that was a very hot topic and even with investors i had like very prominent sort of advisors be like physically angry at me for like why are why are you raising money why don't you just bootstrap but we wanted to because we're not we don't have recurring revenue um, and we wanted to grow pretty aggressively along with our our revenue uh we needed money in the bank as padding uh, just you know for when December rolls around or or when the summer rolls around I knew we needed to raise uh, money and we ended up raising uh, 900k just sort of to have um you know dive into a little bit but mostly just to have it in the bank
0: So tell me about that fundraising process, because it's not something that I I really talk about very often on the podcast. And I think a lot of people who are listening would be curious to hear what it's even like to do that. Like, how do you raise money from investors?
1: It's brutal. It sucks. It's uh, I mean, I guess some people like it, but I imagine most like indie hackers probably would not like it. Uh, I don't like it. Well, I probably like it now, but... (laughs) <laughs> when, I, when I had to do it, when I had to, do it, I just wanted to be like building product. It's demoralizing because you are talking, you know, you think your business, I was like super pumped we were doing at the time. I don't know, whatever it was, a hundred thousand um, a month, but I would tell investors that and they're like, yeah, but it's not recurring. And I was like, well, shit. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's super demoralizing. Uh, you have to, like, what was really important was a big learning curve for me is I didn't know why we needed it and and to, to investors that's like a big red flag um if you're not deliberate about every single major business de- decision that's that's like a sign of a um inexperienced founder um so uh, yeah that was a big one for me i had to really think thoroughly on on like why we wanted to raise money and why we didn't want to bootstrap, and that as I said, was because we need that buffer and we want to grow aggressively with our revenues.
0: How many, how many investors did you talk to and how many no's did you have to get before you started getting some yeses?
1: Man, I thought I like, I was like, we have revenue, like we have product market fit. I'm going to like every single, you know, everyone else said, everyone else got no's. We're going to get yeses. We probably got, I probably talked to, uh, about 40, 45 investors. And eventually, about ten said yes.
0: Okay, that's not too bad. It's not like a disaster story. I've heard hundreds sometimes in the past.
1: Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't that bad. But I was frustrated as hell every time an investor said no to me. I'm like, what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> uh, and my uh, one of them, I was like, it sounds bad, but like I was like, oh, I'm going to prove you so wrong. And eventually, eventually, once you get enough no's, you're like, uh, well, it might not work with his portfolio there. His or her portfolio or I don't know, something like that.
0: Yeah, I say that I've heard worse stories in the past, but honestly, if you get told no even five or ten times, like that can be pretty devastating. It's super crushing.
1: Yeah. It's it's an absolute
0: roller coaster. I like what you said about the investors really wanting to see that you're not just making decisions haphazardly, that you're very deliberate and confident and that you're planning and you have foresight to kind of predict what's coming up and make decisions accordingly. Otherwise they'll think that you're an inexperienced founder. And what's crazy is that if you're growing a company as fast as you did, you probably feel some degree of inexperience no matter what. Like you're riding this big wave. And on one hand, of course you want to do things to push things forward and make the wave bigger. But on the other, you don't want to fuck things up. Is that something that you've ever worried about or been afraid of?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I no, I'm not afraid of it. Well, maybe I am. <laughs> but I, I, I think one of the... uh the biggest things that I've learned is just like embracing the fact that this is like a a super exciting journey that you're on. You're not going to know everything. You are new to this. And and, like one of the, one of the most profound things is somebody told me that the, the the most growth that you'll ever experience comes from pain. You know, investors say, no, your business is not going to work for these three reasons. That is painful but it means the next time you go into an investor meeting you're going to say you're going to be able to say my business will not die because of these three reasons and you can you know counter it before they even, before they even say it so I, I think yeah I think emotionally just being aware that it's going to be a storm it's going to be chaotic every, everyone goes through it and what's exciting the most exciting thing for me is Whenever I experience some sort of major setback, I say I, I imagine myself a year from now, and I say, "Holy crap! I am gonna be so much stronger, you know, so much more experienced, uh, and I'm gonna be a, a a much better person because of these challenges that I'm going through today, because I know I will get through them."
0: What are some of the things that you can look back on? To like the Dawson of a year ago, and say that okay, I've grown as a person or as a founder in these ways.
1: So one of the biggest ones, again, when talking to investors, uh, is how you present yourself, how how quickly you talk. If you don't know the answer to a question, how you are straight up about that and, and don't sort of fumble your words. So yeah, I would say one of the biggest ones is just, and even when you're talking to you know potential employees. Or, or actual employees um, is just being very aware of how you present yourself and how that sort of should change uh, depending on the context. Uh, so for example, you know, when you're chatting with investors, it's really important to be, to, to talk slowly and to sort of seem, seem a little more like you have all the answers. Like you sort of, you are confident in everything you say you are sure of. Whereas, you know, if you're chatting with, a team member. It's actually better not to pretend like you know everything. Um, it's 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 important to to talk with a little more like um, doubt in your voice, so they don't take your word as 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 whatever gospel. Uh, or sorry, they don't take your word as you know the prescriptive answer. Um, so they're actually not not afraid to to challenge you. So I think that's the biggest one is just how you present yourself in different contexts.
0: And what about pain? Because you talked about growing from pain, and part of that was, you know, the downturn in the summer, and part of that was getting told no by investors. But are there any other painful things and experiences that you've learned from, or any nerve-wracking decisions that you've had to make running Logojoy? Yeah,
1: there was one that happened the other day. I was uh, so I've since brought brought on a, a co-founder, a good friend of mine, Roj, and this is at the end of the summer uh, when we're going through the financials. And you know he he trusts me to to have a very good grip on the financials. Obviously, it's it's critically important. And there was a moment where we basically sat down with the, the spreadsheet in front of us, and he said, uh, "This is not right. This is not right. This is not right." Uh, and we are actually in a much sort of worse position than I thought we were financially. I felt like a complete failure. I felt like I had not done sort of like one of the the, the my main jobs you know he was counting on me to to have this covered and i just dropped the ball so that that was a major one that i've learned and i think from there i think one of the biggest sort of uh, learnings from that is if you take on a job uh you better be damn sure you're going to be able to do it well and when i say well uh, i think if you were i always think if i were to hire someone to do this job for me how would i expect them to do it how well would i expect them to do it and i do it that well or better and so that's that was sort of the, a, a big big pain and a and a big learning
0: curve for me you know i think one of the helpful lessons to come out of that as well that's kind of ancillary but it's just how helpful it can be to have a co-founder because it doesn't sound like this is a mistake that you are going to have caught by yourself and yet, regardless of what happened, you kind of indirectly fixed it in advance by being prescient enough to say, hey, even though I'm running the super booming business by myself, I should bring in a co-founder to help me out. And I don't think very many people would have made that decision. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's in that stream, like it's, it's all about surrounding yourself with people, um, you know, co-founders or, or uh, just generally like, team members um, surrounding yourself with people who really, really care, you know, putting a, a structure in place that makes them care. So whether it's giving them equity or giving them, you know, a voice um, or, you know, putting a lot of trust in them. yeah, surrounding yourself, yourself with people that really care.
0: So you've got 23 or 24 people working with you on LogoJoy right now. And it's funny that when you describe how you made that decision about how fast you wanted to grow and what type of company you wanted to be, it almost wasn't even a decision for you. You just kind of automatically knew that what you wanted to do was hire people and grow as fast as you could. And I know a lot of people who would make the exact opposite decision. Like The last thing they want to do is have to manage people. I think it's especially common among people who are builders of things because their skill and their desire and their expertise lies with building things and they don't really have management experience. So I'm curious what your management experience looked like and why you were so confident in hiring people and the kinds of things that you've learned since you started growing your company.
1: What's brutal is those like, well, for me it was Like three or four months for a lot of people, I imagine it's like a year or two that you go that sort of transition period from building a product to building a company. That's really hard because you can't do both well. Uh, So for me, there was like three or four months where I was doing two things not very well. And so that sucks. Uh, But I think for me, you know, I'm the kind of person, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like this, where like my main driver is not like writing code it's not designing it's it's fulfilling the potential that i see in myself right and you you just i don't see myself doing that by you know staying in in sketch and and designing checkouts as much fun as that is um i just don't see it so you know during this phase that's sort of the the silver lining that i saw is the transition sucks acknowledge that and prepare for it um, but on the other side is a person, you, who is, you know, much closer to their sort of, you know, life goal of, uh, for me, it was sort of fulfilling my potential in myself. And I think for a lot of people, just experiencing that, being able to look back a year ago and look at how much you've grown as a person is incredibly satisfying.
0: Yeah, that's one of my favorite feelings as well, to just be able to look back at your old self and think, geez, what was I thinking? And then to know that that feeling means that you've come a long way. Anyway, we've covered some of the more negative pain points that you've gone through and learning experiences, but let's shift gears to some more positive stuff. If you had to say, what would be the things that are most responsible for LogoJoy being so successful? Why do you think this company has worked out so well?
1: Well, I, I think uh, we just sort of got lucky, the right product, right time. I mean the people, the people in the company um, are just so amazing. Uh, they all, yeah, again, they all just care so much. You know, we all sort of see ourselves as part of this like you know all star team, and we're we're taking on the world. And there's so much potential in front of us, and we're just like all, you know, you know, gassed up and 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 ready to go uh, go get it. Um, so that's that's probably just instilling that sort of culture of let's let's go get it. Uh, in the company has been a big one I mean with the with the product itself I think we've we've got a good balance of uh, you know really caring about the design um, but not too much that like we don't release a feature because like it doesn't look that great there's a balance there that we've I've had to you know sacrifice some design on so it's that balance of yes we really care about the design but we also want to like be quick and like release features uh, and we want to you know allow one one developer to build an entire feature uh, because that'll be you know a lot quicker than than having him work with another developer and a designer and things like that so so yeah i think i think probably the biggest thing that is uh, responsible for our success is just like releasing features quickly not like needing to analyze everything before we test or like do this big qa thing Um, We just sort of get it out there and and see.
0: One thing I find fascinating is that even at the beginning, you guys were in a pretty crowded market with a ton of competitors. And they might not have been doing exactly what you guys were doing and they definitely weren't doing as good of a job. But by now you've got probably a lot scarier competitors. I mean, you've got to have at least a few companies who've just outright copied exactly what you've done and are now competing against you. Oh yeah. Despite all that, you guys are still killing it. You're growing in headcount. Your revenue is much higher than it was earlier in the year. So I have to ask you think about the competition at all and is it something that worries you
1: yeah um, we we've had at least three people like exactly copy our code and just put it up on another domain um, that are still running today actually thankfully that's no longer possible but why we are still winning over the competitors i mean the good news is that competitors will will rarely kill you at this at this scale even if you have like major competitors there's still like people will still like click on they'll end up clicking on your ad before theirs and if you're good enough at converting them you can still like own that customer so there's like a lot of a lot of customers to go around right now i don't look at really any other logo makers i mean when there's a new one i'll like check it out just to make sure it's just as just is not as good as the old ones the other ones there have been some like pretty good ones that have launched in the last year but again, like there's the scale is so small that I just worrying about it is, is a waste of energy. Yeah. So I'm really not worried about our competition. When I look at quote unquote competition, I look at basically the competition in where we want to go. So when I imagine LogoJoy in two years, what would our competition, who is our competition at that size? And then I look at them. Um, so, you know, again, that's, that's looking at design agencies. Um, when hopefully we'll be sort of competing with them in two years. Um, That's looking at products that, uh, as I mentioned, we want to move into all other kinds of design. Um, So looking at products that offer all other kinds of design, uh, looking at them and, um, you know, what that landscape looks like. Yeah, so it's it's really sort of like looking at our competitors two years from now (laughs) and seeing what they're doing.
0: Yeah, I think that's a smart way to approach it, to always be looking forward to where you want to go rather than worrying about who's catching up from behind you. Because if you're always looking back and worried about that, then it really means you're not moving fast enough. By the time other people catch up to you, you should already be months or years ahead of where you were at that point.
1: Yeah. And I I just wouldn't stress a lot of the, like, whenever a new logo maker comes up on the team, people actually, people get like spooked. They're like, oh shit, like a new logo maker, they're going to steal 20% of our business. That's never the case never the case like there are, people underestimate how many customers there are to go around. Maybe you're advertising in, on Facebook and like the other competitors aren't advertising on Facebook. there are a lot of customers to go around.
0: Exactly your competitors don't have to die in order for your business to succeed and the vast majority of industries and it's a shame more people don't realize this because people will get discouraged and not start a company just because they see that other people are doing similar things. On a related note, you mentioned Facebook ads, and it makes me curious how does Logo Joy grow? I mean, every business at the top of their list, the number one thing they want is more traffic, more users, more customers, more revenue. How do you guys get customers in the door at Logo Joy? Uh,
1: so, our first like five months, our growth was 100% fueled, well, apart from indie hackers, uh, <laughs> it was 100% fueled by by AdWords. So, we would spend you know a dollar to acquire a customer. And about four days later, we would get $1.10 back from them. So that was our that was our entire marketing plan for the first uh, you know four or five months. That would not be scalable. Like our the only reason we were able to to hire people and and to you know move into an office and all that was because of SEO. So now nowadays about 60% of our sorry 55% of our Uh, our new users come from just organic seo we've really pushed hard on that Um, and then just word of mouth is is where we've sort of seen uh, the most natural uh, organic growth up up until now
0: i imagine for something like logo makers seo has got to be super competitive because there can't be that many terms that people are searching for to find you guys yes basically logo maker (laughs) (laughs) exactly so what do you guys do to win that race
1: you know, thankfully, Google's moving towards and like Google's pretty smart, and uh, we just like we got there organic. We got there there without even without even trying, uh, and then once we were there, we're like, oh my god, like this is hugely profitable. Let's start trying. <laughs> so we we ended up. What, what do we do? We we have a great uh, PR person, Melissa. We, we incentivize people to share us. Um, I, I, I truly believe that social sharing does have an impact on SEO. Um, so we have a lot of like social sharing and then we we work with a lot of like we're we're quite you know we we give out free logos if someone wants to review us and uh, yeah we, we just we work with some bloggers and some publicists to sort of get our name out there.
0: yeah, SEO is such a dark art. I mean nobody works for Google. nobody knows exactly how their algorithm works. And so the best we can do is guess. And even if, even if we hit on something that kind of works right now, who's to say it's going to work a month from now or a year from now? So it's kind of fun to talk to people like you whose businesses benefit so heavily from search engine optimization and traffic.
1: Yeah, one thing, we, one thing I love is doing microsites. Um, so we have one called How to Make a Logo. It was inspired by uh, Crew. They had uh, a microsite called How, to Make, How Much to Make an App. Uh, which, like, outline how much it would cost to make an app. Um, but we have one called How to Make a Logo, um, and it's been super popular. Basically, outlines, like, every option there is to make a logo. Um, and that's been... And we have a, a couple other sort of microsites in the works, um, and that's, those have been pretty, pretty beneficial.
0: Beneficial. I think microsites and these kind of side project marketing type things are so smart because not only do they help you on the search engine rankings, but they also help you provide value to your customers. I mean, you're literally just making something that's helpful for them, which is always a good thing to do. I mean, if nothing else, you'll learn a lot from that experience. And the alternative, content marketing, is something that's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to be on the content treadmill. Not everybody likes writing. So if you prefer coding and and making products, and maybe that's what you're better at, then you can build a side project or a microsite that's geared towards bringing in traffic.
1: Yeah, exactly, and the the thing is, like, bloggers, bloggers, and publishers don't like they're not as uh, like they don't link to other blogs as much as they used to, right? Like, it used to be ten years ago when you liked uh, a blog post, you know, one of the ways that you would uh, show that appreciation is by linking to them. Uh, nowadays, that doesn't really happen, uh, or it happens a lot less. Uh, so you have to look at it like, okay, what are people actually, you know, what's actually worthy the, I guess the, what's worthy of a mention in a blog post is that bar is, is just going higher and higher and higher. Um, and it's why microsites are sort of uh, becoming more and more popular because, you know, a a microsite is much more worthy of a a link than, than a blog post.
0: Yeah. If you're going to get on the top of hacker news or designer news or or any of these sites product hunt, then probably people were more likely to talk about a substantive interactive microsite.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Except for indie hackers.
0: <laughs> Except for indie hackers. It's all it's all <laughs> content. But luckily I don't I don't write it all by hand. Otherwise I would fall over dead. So on a more personal note, I'm curious about how your life has changed in the past year. Because you've suddenly gone from I guess freelancing and, and working on you know these smaller projects to being thrust into this role where you're running a company of 20 people. What does that do to a person, especially a person who's not necessarily expecting it? Are you stressed out all the time? Are you loving life, or, or both? I'm
1: I'm loving life, man. Um, I'm like the thing. Like one thing I learned is that it's so easy to be stressed out all the time. Like if you don't deliberately like get a, a grasp of your of your mindset, you're going down. Uh, you're going to get stressed out. You're going to be always frustrated, always irritable. One thing that has changed about me is um, I'm really good at talking to myself and really good at getting a uh, grip on my emotions. And if, uh, so now if something really stressful happens, like we're, you know, slapped with a, you know, a legal claim or something like that, I don't immediately, my heart doesn't sink anymore. I don't get super stressed out. I say, all right, I've handled, you know, things even harder than this before. It's going to sound really bad at first, but with these things, they always, you know, they always sound better the next day. Um, so let's just, you know, let's just stay cool. Um, so that's, that's one of the big things that's changed with me is just sort of, I guess, staying, um, you know, I I spend like an hour every night just like making sure I'm like mentally okay. Um, So that's, that's, that's one big one. Yeah. What else? Um, I, one thing you're a lot more humble. Um, and one, it's, it's amazing. What happens to you at like overall is amazing. One of the, one of the best things is you are like so much more confident in like, in a a really a good way. I think like, it's not like you're like super cocky because you're this big, you know, CEO, whatever you're, you're just a lot more, uh, comfortable in your own skin, uh, like truly comfortable in your own skin. Like you don't, you stop caring what people think of you. And so, yeah, you're just like a lot more, it's like a really healthy confidence, um, that sort of like, you feel like you always had in you, but now because you're in this position, um, you're sort of in, you're in a pretty high position. That's, that's enough for you. And just because that's enough for you then your confidence is, is, is
0: great. That's really awesome to hear. I especially like the point about if you dive into the deep end, you're going to accumulate experiences that are hard, and then when you run up against other hard things, you really can say I've been through worse. You know, you really can say like, "Oh yeah, I can for sure survive this because I survived that other thing and I was, you know, twice as hard." Yeah. So I think a lot of people listening in are just considering building a business online or maybe they're looking for an idea or they've taken a few steps without much success so far. What would be your advice for someone in that situation?
1: I mean, one one big one is like I, like that was literally me exactly a year ago. Like a year ago today, I was like in my living room, like had one month of rent left in my bank account. And just, I was just like coding on this side project that I thought like might be a thing. I think if I heard someone say, if I heard someone say that, I think I'd be like, you know a little more motivated to to like keep working on it um but i think yeah if if i already give one piece of advice it's just to to know that it's like fully possible for you know for your side project to blow up and people you know i think people the the most common thing is that you know it it, it takes you know years and years and years for for something to um, to even start showing any signs of traction like Airbnb or something like that. Um, I think a much more exciting thing is that it's, it's actually possible for you to launch something and then in, you know, in a year it'd be making, uh, you know, it'd be a big company and you're like solid growth and like, you know, making a, a, a good amount of revenue and, and really making a difference in the world. Um, that's like fully possible. Uh, which is which is really exciting to know So yeah i think i think just just be aware that it's that's fully possible and just keep building <laughs> keep building
0: yeah you know i mentioned this earlier but it's exciting to know that we're living in a time where one person can accomplish so much and it's wise to keep your expectations low and not put a ton of pressure on yourself but if you're ambitious and you do the best that you can it's also motivational to know that you can build something that succeeds pretty quickly Anyway, thanks for coming on the show, Dawson. Uh, It's been great having you. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about you personally and the things that you're up to at LogoJoy?
1: Yeah, I believe, yeah, you can go to my uh, sort of personal website. Uh, It's just uh, DawsonMitfield.com. And uh, yeah, LogoJoy is at LogoJoy.com.
0: All right. Thanks, Dawson. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast... Why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com review and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there and they really help other people to discover the show. So thanks a ton for your support. In addition, if you are running an Internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com forum. It's a great place to get help with pretty much any problem that you might encounter while growing your business, like how to come up with an idea or feedback on a product that you're working on. I try to spend a couple hours a day just answering questions and giving people feedback and getting to know everyone, so I really hope to see you there. That's andyhackers.com slash forum. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.